You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. But first, what is being commanded here? Right. Simply put, worship is being commanded in this psalm. It's, it's plain as day that this psalm is telling us that we are to worship God, as we sang in that first hymn, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, again, that's the whole point of this psalm, really. Um, and I would argue all the psalms and all the scriptures, right? Here's what God has done. Now worship him in gratitude and thankfulness. That's the great theme. Here's what God has done for you in Christ. Now worship him as his people. Right? The worship of God is the theme. And there's actually six or seven different ways that this call to worship is expressed in the psalm, and I'll go ahead and list them for you. Uh, first, we're told to make a joyful noise to the Lord in verse 1. We're told to serve the Lord in verse 2. We're told to come into his presence in verse 2. We're told to sing in verse 2. We're told to enter his gates and courts. That's verse 4. We're to give thanks to him, also verse 4. And we are to bless his name, verse 4. Right. So if you notice, verses 2 and 4 really are a lot of the commands there. Uh, rather, 1, 2, and 4. But we're being told then in those commands, I want to summarize them. We're being told to intentionally come into his presence, right? Come into his presence with singing. Um, and though we are always in the presence of God because he is uh, omnipresent, there's a way that we can come into his presence intentionally, which is what we do on the Lord's Day in corporate worship. We come into his presence with intention. And we're told to enter his gates and his courts, which is corporate worship, again. So that there's really a big corporate worship, what we're doing now, vibe to this psalm. We're told to do what pleases him, that is to serve the Lord, to sing and speak truth about him, again, the joyful noise, singing and blessing, and to thank him, to have hearts full of thanksgiving for what he has done for us. This is worship. Right? Primarily, again, corporate worship is in mind in this psalm. It's our gathering on the Lord's Day. Uh, but in all these commands, God is calling us to recount his wonderful deeds together. That's one of the biggest parts of praise is declaring truths about God, right? Declaring what he has done, declaring who he is. We're to declare his truth, to take his name upon our lips and show him the reverence and praise that he deserves as God. We're to ascribe worth to him, to declare that he is supreme over all and to thank him for his personal mercies toward us as well as his mercies toward us as the people of God as a whole. We're being summoned in this psalm by God himself to come together and bow the knee to him and declare the supremacy and unrivaled greatness and goodness of God. We're being called to come and celebrate the unparalleled excellencies of the living God. So that's what we're being commanded. But not only are we being called in this psalm to come and perform acts of worship that we just looked at, this psalm also tells us how we should worship. Right? And when I say how, I'm not talking about the regulative principle of worship. Right? That just makes you sound smart, by the way, whenever you talk. The regulative principle of worship. That's just how we're supposed to worship according to the command of God. Uh, that's not what I'm, I'm talking about. I'm not talking about what your liturgy is supposed to look like when you assemble, though that may be coming in a couple of weeks. I haven't decided. Um, when I say this evening that this psalm tells us how we ought to worship, what I mean is that this psalm tells us what the posture of our hearts is to be when we intentionally come into God's presence to worship him. And the heart disposition demanded by God is one of praise and zeal for him. Verse 1 says we are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse 2 says we are to serve him with 
gladness. Verse 4 says we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving. That is a heart of gratitude and, and praise to God for his kindness toward us. And verse 4 also tells us we are to bless his name or we are to praise his name. And you can't do that with a cold heart. This tells us then that God is not only, not only concerned with the fact that we assemble and worship him, but he is concerned that we do so with hearts that are tuned properly. God desires us to worship with hearts that are white hot for him and zealous for his glory. Please hear me, and this is especially important for Reformed people to hear this. So I'm talking mainly to, to our church members because we love liturgy, right? The Reformed tradition, we like reverence, right? We say stuff together, like we recite things together. It's quiet, right? We like reverent worship. Please hear me. God is not pleased with a cold, dead, merely formal, merely ritualistic, uncaring, unfeeling kind of worship. He's not pleased with that. The Lord is offended when we worship him with cold hearts. Hear me, if I could make a, a comparison. Just as God is offended with silliness parading itself around as worship, as we see in many modern evangelical churches, he is also offended with cold, dead, merely formal, and merely external worship. He's just as offended. The Lord is after our hearts in worship. We are to come to him with hearts bursting for his praise. Hearts that are glad to be here. Hearts that are glad to declare his goodness and greatness. Hearts that are thankful right, and assemble together to show him honor and praise and recount his wondrous works. So there is to be real heartfelt feeling in our worship. There is supposed to be real godly elements of passion and emotion when we worship the living God. And some of you are going, emotion? We're reformed. We don't do that. <laughs> we don't have emotion when we worship. If that's you, then shame on you and you need to repent. How could our worship be emotionless? If you think about who our God is for five seconds and what he's done for you in Christ. Far be it from us to say our worship should be emotionless and just rigid and cold. It should never be cold or lifeless, especially good theology should impact your doxology. Good theology should impact how you worship God. The more you know and the more you understand about God, the more zealous you should be for his worship and praise. Our worship should be robust and pouring out of our hearts because we can't hold it in because we understand who God is. Now, I want to be clear when I say that. Zealous, warm hearts of worship might look like crying and hand-raising, even exclaiming at the appropriate times, right? That would be more me, right? You, I say amen and raise my hands, and I cry a lot, actually, whenever I read the Bible and, and sing, and when I preach, some of you catch me almost crying a lot. But it can also look like somber, hands in the pockets, quiet rejoicing in the heart of the worshiper. Zeal for the worship of God is a matter of the heart's disposition towards the Lord, not necessarily external manifestations. Right? Whether or not there is any kind of external movement is usually going to depend upon the individual. Right? If you're a naturally expressive person, you're probably going to more naturally be outwardly expressive in worship. But it doesn't have to be that way. Again, it's an inward heart disposition. But again, this, the point is that this psalm tells us that our hearts as well as our heads should be involved in worship. And I wanted to highlight that because I think we can forget that sometimes. 
Your heart ought to be involved in worship as well as your head. We're after the affections, right? God's after our affections, rather, not just our minds when we come to worship him. So our hearts should be full to bursting with joy and gladness towards God when we approach him in times of worship. That's the point. So, that we are to worship God, and that we are to do it with glad, joyous, and thankful hearts is abundantly clear in the text. I don't think anyone can dispute that. I listed all the things for you, right? You can't fight with me about that. But why? Why should we do this? What is our motivation for this kind of praise? What is our motivation for this kind of worship? Well, as is the character of God, he tells us in this text. The text itself furnishes us with powerful reasons for why we should worship the Lord and why we should do it gladly. So let's quickly consider them, or somewhat quickly compared to normal. Right? Let, let's consider some of these. Verse 3 tells us, Know that Yahweh, know that the Lord, He is God. How simple. How simple. This is actually maybe my favorite one. How simple is this? Yahweh, the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is God. That is our first reason for worshiping the Lord, because He is God. It's simple and yet profound. If for no other reason, if no other reasons were given, and this was the only one, this one would be enough for us to gladly worship the Lord, because He is God. Just considering, like, let's take a minute and consider some of what it means to be God. And I think that's going to, uh, or rather, what it means that he is God. I think that will help us understand why this simple statement ought to move us to worship. First thing, his essence is incomprehensible. You ever thought about that for a minute? The stuff of God, godness, if you will, is incomprehensible. What does that mean? means you cannot and I cannot fully fathom what it means to be God. We cannot fathom his nature. We can only affirm certain truths about him that he has revealed to us and deny anything that would contradict those things that we can affirm according to the scriptures. And apart from his revelation, we would know next to nothing about him. He actually, our finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite God. Right? Even what we have in the scriptures, uh, to paraphrase John Calvin, is God bending down to talk to us in baby talk so we can understand something about him. That's how incomprehensible he is. That's how high above us that he is. Our finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite God. We understand what it means to be human pretty well. We understand creaturely natures pretty well, but to try and get our arms around what it means to be God, what his nature is, is utterly impossible. We can know him truly, but we cannot know him fully. He's incomprehensible. He is transcendent. He stands in a category by himself. Our words fail to describe him fully. Again, we can know true things about him. We can know things truly about him, but we cannot fully know him. Another, exa another example or an attribute of God for you to think on in light of know that Yahweh, he is God. He's immutable. He doesn't change. His nature doesn't change. He himself does not change. He doesn't age. He doesn't change his mind. You cannot add to him. You cannot take away from him. He is constant. We have nothing to compare this to. Do you realize that? Sometimes the, the Bible compares God to a rock to describe this kind of unchanging nature of God. 
But even rocks change, give it enough time, right? Nothing actually compares to this. Everything in the universe is creaturely and, 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 and subject to change, but not him. He is unmovable, unshakable, and unchangeable. He's omnipotent. There's another one. He's never bound by a lack of power. Oh, please hear me. This is, if you just think about it for a minute. Yeah, God's all-powerful, right? We, we say that. But for God to be the almighty God, able to do all that he pleases, what does that mean? It means he doesn't try to do anything. God doesn't try. To try implies the possibility of lacking power or ability and therefore the possibility of failure. That's what it means to try. It means you might fail because you lack power to accomplish the thing that you were trying to do. But that's an impossibility with him because he is the all-powerful one. You ever thought about that? What it would be like to not try ever again, but to just do? That's God. He's holy. He's set apart. He's unique. He's perfect in all of his ways. He's in a category by himself. There are none like him. Who will you liken him to? To quote Isaiah. And I only mentioned three of his perfections. Who will you compare this God to? This God is worthy of your worship if for no other reason than just who he is. If he never did anything for you, he's still worthy of your worship because he stands on his own, supreme above the creation. This God's worthy of your worship. So we ought to stand in awe of him just as we consider his greatness and his majesty that just exists within himself. In a phrase, he is not like us. He is God so make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Second thing we see in this text is that God has made us into his people. This God, this great transcendent God, has made us into his people. It is he who made us, and we are his. Now, now some people understand this to be just a, a, a bare declaration of God's supremacy as the creator. Right? That's what a lot of the Puritans tended to think. Um, it basically goes like this. We ought to worship him because he created us. And as his creations, we are his. Again, we are owned by him and therefore obligated to worship him as the psalm commands. Right? Being his property. And there's a lot of truth there. Right? Not, not denying that. I won't dispute that. That is a powerful reason to worship God. To recognize he's God, you're not. He's creator, you're creature. And therefore you are morally obligated to do whatsoever he is pleased to command you. That's, that's big. That's big. But I think there's something deeper here than, than just an affirmation that God created our physical bodies. Keep in mind the original audience and singers of this psalm. Who were they? They're Jews. The nation of Israel. The Jewish people. Israelites sang this. Israel sang this corporately. And there are different passages in the Old Testament that, that speak metaphorically of God, especially Deuteronomy 32, I believe it is, that speak of God birthing Israel and creating Israel as a people, specifically creating them as his covenant people. There are also texts, especially in the Torah, again, Deuteronomy, I'm thinking of chapter 7, about God taking and setting apart the descendants of Abraham and making them his special possession. I love that phrase, making them his special possession. So I think it's reasonable and highly likely that this verse, when sung by the Jewish people, the original singers, is really saying, it is God who made us into his people. It is God who made us into Israel. It is God who brought us into covenant with himself, and therefore, we are his. We belong to him as a special possession. 
What a beautiful way to describe our relationship to God. Now that much, what I just said, was certainly true of the earthly nation of Israel in an external covenantal sense under the old covenant. God formed them as a people and created them to be his people under that covenant. There is no doubt about that. But how much more is this true about us, Christian? How much more is this true about us, the church? Remember, the church is what Israel always pointed to. Israel, a mixed covenant, pointing to a pure covenant uh, under the new covenant. The old covenant being what foreshadowed and pointed to the new one. If Jews could sing this back then, we can sing it now much more deeply as members of the covenant of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. If they could sing it, we certainly can. Is it not abundantly evident to you, Christian, that God has created us as his people? We didn't create ourselves. We didn't do it physically, and we certainly didn't create ourselves spiritually. You didn't bring yourself into covenant with God through Christ. None of us did. We did not cause ourselves to be born again, contrary to what some churches would teach you. We did not make atonement for ourselves. Our being created into the people of God was all the work of God. It is he who made us. Some of this is recitation for a lot of you. You know this, but it is God who planned our salvation in, in eternity past. It is God who covenanted within himself, within the Godhead, to save a people for his own glory. It's God who chose and predestined us for adoption as sons into his family. It's God who by his son made atonement for our sins on a cross. It is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has secured our redemption and reconciliation with God by his blood. It is God who by his spirit caused us to be born again and gave us the gift of faith and united us to the Lord Jesus so that we might receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's God who's joined us all together into one body, the church, with Christ at its head. We are the creation of God. Physically and spiritually, it is he who had mercy upon us. We did nothing. I hope you understand that above all other things if you're a Christian. You did nothing. It is he who made us. We were acted upon by the God who is love itself, who sovereignly dispensed his mercy and grace to us. It is he who made us, and we are his. And the psalm tells us we are his people. The sheep of his pasture, that's the next one. Or as we're going to sing, we are his flock, he doth us feed. And for his sheep, he doth us take. Amen. We are his sheep, his flock, his people. The ones that he has sovereignly decided to take an interest in and show us mercy. If we're his flock, then he's our shepherd. And in Jesus Christ, we see most clearly our good shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep so that we might be saved. But not only that, he's the good shepherd who, in his mercy toward the flock, takes care of us each day. He feeds us by his word, doesn't he? He feeds us according to his word by his spirit working alongside the scriptures. He leads us and guides us in the way that we should go that pleases him. He binds up our wounds as a good shepherd would and heals us of our sins and iniquities. He teaches us righteousness as we follow him in faith. He leads us to rest by the streams of his grace. He's patient with us, though we are foolish, stupid sheep most of the time. Christian, I, I know that you personally have specific examples in your own life that you can recall even now and see how he has been the good shepherd to you. 
I know you do. Times when he has provided for you when you did not know how you would go on further. Times when he has shown you tender mercies and spared your life. Times when he has taught you, patiently taught you, though it took you many years to see the truth. Times when he has provided fellowship for you when you fell all alone. Times when he restored you from wandering because he's a good shepherd. We are his sheep. He takes care of us. So serve the Lord with gladness and enter his gates with thanksgiving. This psalm also reminds us, a fourth point, that we should worship God, verse 5, for Yahweh is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Christian, hear in this line something that should make you come into his presence with singing. Hear something with me. His steadfast love endures forever. That is his hesed, his covenant love. His covenant love endures for eternity. It's never failing and always there for his people. His love is never ending. Hear me. And if you're not a believer, this can be true of you if you will trust in Christ. His love is never ending for those whom he has covenanted himself to by the blood of Jesus. Christian, upon faith in Christ, you were placed into the covenant of grace. This covenant mediated by Jesus himself. A covenant full of promises towards you that Jesus merited for you in your place by his perfection, by his righteousness, and by his death and resurrection. And one of those promises, though there are many, one of those promises is that God will be your God forever. And that he will always show you love and mercy. This covenant that we are in is founded upon Jesus and his work, so it is unbreakable. It is eternal. The promises in the covenant are yours forever. Let me put it to you this way to simplify it. Christian, God will never stop loving you. His love endures. His covenant love endures. And you're in covenant with him through Christ. All else may fade away. All else may perish. But not his love for you. It endures. His love for you will never end. His love for you, hear me. This is scandalous to say. His love for you burns brightly even when you sin. That is the scandalous nature of the love of God for you. Even when you sin. His love for you is not changing because it endures. Even when you're hated and persecuted by the world, he loves you. Even when everything else falls around or falls apart around you and you don't know how you'll go on, he loves you. Even when all hope seems to be gone, his love endures forever. He will never stop showing you mercy. He will never stop being your God. He is unceasing in his forgiveness unceasing in his compassion and unceasing in his blessings towards you. His love endures forever. So give thanks to him. Bless his name. And the last thing mentioned is that his faithfulness endures to all generations. He is faithful. Now that, has, that, can, that can mean many things. I just want to highlight one thing here. That means he is true and faithful to keep his word to all generations. He's faithful to keep his promises. 
faithful to be a sure guide to his people, to never lie to us, to always lead us in a good path for his name's sake, to save us from our sins, to teach us, to be God to us, to never forsake us. He is trustworthy to the highest degree imaginable. His faithfulness is to all generations. Christian, that means you can trust him. When you aren't sure who you can trust, you can trust him. Now let me illustrate this, and it might make some of you mad. I don't think it will, but whatever, let's go. Let me illustrate this for you. In the current times that we live in, there's a lot of confusion because of this coronavirus thing. Right? I know I sound like a hick, this coronavirus thing. Right? With this pandemic, I should say. People don't know who to believe, and people don't know what to believe. We have a government that has proven itself, or proven itself to not be trustworthy most of the time. And now they're asking us to trust them with our health, our safety, and our jobs. Now, no matter how you feel about the government protocols in place right now, that is not the point that I'm trying to make. The point I'm making is that when trust between a ruler and the people is broken, it doesn't return most of the time, does it? And that's why many people in our country feel so confused about what and who to believe concerning many different things with life right now. Because the trust between ruler and people has been broken. But not so with God. But not so with God. He has never been untrustworthy, has he? He's never lied to you. He's never done a bait and switch. He's never made you look over here while he did something over here. We can always look to him for instruction in the way that we should go. He's never lied to us. Everyone else may lie to us, but he is faithful always. His faithfulness endures forever, so you can always trust him. What he says he will do, and he promises to be a faithful guide to those who will submit to him. He is the faithful God. As the psalm tells us then, bless his name. He is faithful. So praise him. Worship him. With hearts full of praise and thanksgiving, worship him. Recognize, Christian, that heartfelt worship is your duty as a creature. It is your duty. It is your obligation. And even more so as one of the people of God. But even more than that, please hear me. It is your joy and it is your privilege to worship God. It is your joy and privilege to worship him. We've seen in this psalm that the sovereign Lord who is high above us and completely unlike us has willingly and graciously come to us and placed us in covenant with himself through his son. He's made us into his people. We are his sheep. He takes care of us. He is good to us. He loves us with an unfailing love and he is supremely trustworthy and faithful to us. These are favors And I mean that in the old school sense. This is God's favor towards us. These are examples of favor. These are the graces of God towards us. In other words, these are our privileges as the people of God. All these things we've talked about, these are your privileges, Christian. It is pure grace from God that we can claim these things for ourselves and say, that is how God treats me. It's by grace. Hear me, none of these things are owed to us. You're not a good person. You might think you are, but you're not. You're a liar, right? So there's another commandment you've broken. You're not a good person. We lie to ourselves all the time. We think that we deserve good things to happen to us, but we don't. We're sinners. All of these things are of grace. 
in spite of our unworthiness, God has graciously done, promised, and is all of these things to us. So then, it is our privilege as the people of God to praise and thank him for those mercies he has extended to us, isn't it? He, you did not deserve these mercies, these favors, these graces from God, but he gave them. You are privileged to receive them. Now it is your privilege to thank him in worship. And again, I want to highlight this. I say privilege because not all people can claim these things for themselves. All people are morally obligated to worship the Lord. All people are morally obligated to ascribe supreme worth to him. Everyone. But we, the people of God, have been enabled by the Spirit of God to actually worship him. And it's by his grace that, again, we can look at the words of these psalms, or this psalm, and say, this is a reality for me. Only the elect of God can say that. Only those chosen by the Father, atoned for by Christ, and regenerated by the Spirit can say these things. Only those who have been shown free, sovereign grace from God can say the things in this psalm. And that is not the whole world. So the only reasonable thing left for us to do is to see the privileges we have to be named among the people of God and then worship Him in gladness and thankfulness. It is our privilege to worship Him. So Christian, praise Him. You have the privilege of access to Him. Imagine this, the sovereign God of all the world summons you to come to Him and worship Him. He beckons you who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ to come near to Him and be blessed by Him as you bless His name. How wild. You've been called out of the world and to this great privilege. So count it as such in your heart and worship the Lord. Do it with zeal, with joy and gladness and thanksgiving and praise. We are his people. Praise him. In this assembly here and now, as verse 4 tells us, praise him publicly. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That was a reference to the temple complex back then, but now what are we? A temple of living stones, according to Peter. Wherever the church is, that is his gates and his courts that we are to enter into with praise. Do that. Partake of the means of grace set before you this evening with gladness and worship God with warm hearts. But don't let it stop today. Continually enter into the presence of God this way, week after week, with hearts bursting with joy. You know, in, in, in closing, this week feels special to us, doesn't it? And in some way it is. Right? It's been two or two and a half months and we've, since we've been able to meet, so it's special. But in reality, this is just another Sabbath day. It's just another Sabbath day. And the joy and desire that you have today for the worship of God is what we ought to have always and why is that? It's because God doesn't change. The things that I've set before you this evening are true always. So why should this day, how you feel today, be any different from the other days? The zeal you have for the worship of God, it should not change. Because these truths that we've went over today are true of you, Christian, at all times. So we ought to always have this disposition toward our God because he's always worthy of our worship. And we can say always we are his people and he cares for us and he's good and his faithful love endures forever. Always. So give thanks to him for he has done wonderful things for us. Let's pray. God and Father, thank you so much 
for your mercies and for the privileges that you've given us, that we can call ourselves your people, is astounding. The fact that you've condescended in the Lord Jesus. The fact that Christ came to die for us, that we might be saved. Lord, we do not have words to adequately describe the praise that you deserve. But Lord, you have commanded us to praise you. So by your spirit and according to your truth, we will praise you with lisping tongues and stammering tongues. And we know that you accept it because it's mediated by Christ. So God, I pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth every week when we gather because these things are always true of you. Help us to see that and help us to remember that. You are worthy at all times. And we bless your name. Amen.